Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones exteriones y culto. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlqvist, good boy. And I am Brian Kodak. We are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% surprise content. Mystery. Where in the world are you, Joel? Still isolated in, uh, in rural Sweden, about to go to Copenhagen after we finish recording. Where are you? I'm sitting Indian style in my apartment in Stockholm. Uh, you know, I feel like every time I say this, if people haven't noticed, we've started to use somewhat of a formalized introduction. But I feel like when we say that question, where in the world are you? I want to put the emphasis on different words every time okay. we do it. Yeah. So, so which word are we supposed to emphasize this? Time? Where in the world are you, Joel? <laughs> okay, let's do that for the next one. But okay. you, you just come back from, from LA. How jet-lagged are you on a scale of 1 to 10? Scale of 1 to woke up at 2.30 in the morning. Okay, yeah. good. that's good though. It's perfect to record some podcast. Maybe I can get you to say something you'll regret later because <laughs> exactly. you're not focused. <laughs> this is the first time I've woken up before Joel in 2018. <laughs> um. First and foremost, this season is running on the pure steam of the Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, which is our sponsor for Season 3. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of, an, of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies highlight government agencies. Subscribe to IA Reporter. Visit iareporter.com. Right. And we're also running on the steam of you guys, uh, although I think uh, there's not so much steam anymore uh, with our crowdfunding effort. We've received uh, a lot of a lot of uh, contributions, which we are happy to have so that we can keep going but i think we'll keep it open for another few weeks no yes it is still open so please keep it going amen what else is new in the life of brian kodak nothing it is just conference planning in full swing um as everyone knows i am co-organizing a conference on the 7th of november that joel is moderating the first panel in um, it's called Navigating the Muddy Waters of International Arbitration, of Modern International Arbitration. It will take place on a boat to have the punniness <laughs> of the entire conference that we're navigating the waters. Um, it's called The Theatership. It's really nice, a really nice venue, and it'll be a formal dinner. Some of the topics at the conference will be um, the first one that Joel's doing is Hot Topics in Arbitration. The second one is Public Interests uh, in uh, international arbitration, which I will actually be moderating. The third one is shareholders' rights in arbitration, and the last one is how to handle parallel proceedings. Um, the We already have most of our speakers lined up, and we have 
are a lot of great names. Um, and we have a keynote speaker who is a previous guest on the podcast, Mark Cantor. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, we that's just locked him in. So that's exciting. Yeah. And we haven't decided his topic yet, but I think uh, he has some great ideas that are brewing. Yeah, um, he can speak that guy yes and so he'll be the first he'll start off the whole day so we're pretty excited about that and then um registration for it is open if you're a student registration will open in the first week in october but if you're a practitioner or a um, scholar or a civil servant you can already sign up at icalaa.org that's i-c-a-l-a-a.org um, and the registration is open and ready for you there is a small fee um, and a separate fee for the dinner, but we promise you it'll be worth it. And it's, a, of course, in connection with the FDI moot court competition. So feel free to sign up to be an arbitrator um, because that's always a great event and great visibility for whatever firm you represent or for yourself as a moody or practitioner. Yes. Product pushing over. Yes. Good. <laughs> we can finally get back to arbitration substance instead i'm so uncomfortable pushing things it's good that we have an american co-hosting the podcast with <laughs> tuesday 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 <laughs> so today we have a fully packed episode of the arbitration station first we are white we are male we have to talk about privilege especially because <laughs> the kavanaugh hearings are ongoing as we record this but it, unfortunately, I'm guessing it's not going to be that type of white male privilege that we will address, is it? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I think that's been addressed enough. Uh, we'll be discussing privilege in international arbitration and when to invoke it, who can invoke it, the scope of it, uh, what law is to be applied to it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of a big, chunky topic, but we will attempt to break off a piece at least. So privilege in the sense that documents are protected and cannot be uh, disclosed in the arbitration rather than privilege in the sense that certain arbitrators are privileged in society. <laughs> and we are privileged to have this beautiful podcast. Exactly. Okay. Enough puns, enough product pushing. <laughs> <laughs> then we have an interview, uh, which I am happy. I confess to you that it's good that I'm not conducting it. It's you and Nils Hirsing a Danish arbitrator who is based in either Hong Kong or Dubai. I'm not really sure because he moves around a lot, maybe. Dubai, he just moved there. Okay, yeah. Uh, I told you that it's good that I'm not on it because it, it is about post-M&A disputes of which I know exactly nothing. It's far away from investment treaty arbitration. <laughs> so it's, it's you and Neil's microphone and uh, some M&A discussions. Yes, uh, and it was a great discussion, but I too, I had to read up on it before we met, but still I found myself grasping and having my synapses burn, uh, trying to make sure I figured it out. But I think once you kind of understand the terminology, the logic of it all is pretty self-explanatory. It's mostly, you know, contract analysis based off like representations and warranties. And, as you know, it's, I think you, after listening to it, you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. That's great. And after listening to it, you can also move on to Happy Fun Time, uh, which this week, uh, or this episode rather, since we're bi-weekly now, is about titles and how to use them in arbitration. Who's a doctor? Who's a missus uh, rather than a miss? Uh, who's a professor doctor? And how, how should you address people both formally and informally in this business of ours? Uh, which is something I struggle with. Daily. 
yeah, more or less coming uh, seriously coming from a pretty informal society where we got rid of titles even for state officials decades ago. It's it's hard to navigate, especially in some more formal jurisdictions that I think we'll get back to. Yes, uh, I mean, even sending out, um, well, I guess we'll talk about this in the segment, but even sending out the requests for speakers for this conference, it's been a constant battle. Yeah, you don't want to offend people unnecessarily, at least not in emails on podcasts, it's fine. All right, so that is the program for this episode. Sounds like an exciting one. Let's move on. Now we will talk about white male privilege and why it's uh, making our entire society suffer. Joel, comments? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, We are talking about privilege in international arbitration, and mostly privilege comes up, as Joel said in the introduction, uh, at the document production phase, but it can also come up in testimony, um, which we haven't really talked that we didn't talk about in the intro, that you can have witness testimony be stricken from the record or forbidden based off certain types of privilege. Um, but you know, if we, if we talk about the practice of when this comes out as it's during the document production phase, and what will happen is that there will be kind of a Redfern schedule and in the Redfern schedule, there will be, um, certain invocations of privilege, uh, or objections to the production of documents based off privilege. And then parties are often required to compile a list of privileged documents or what's called a privilege log whose categories may be challenged by the counterparty, either categorically or based off certain individual documents. Um, And what can also happen is that this can also, there can also be clawback provisions as well or clawback agreements so that documents that are disclosed actually can be taken back and disregarded um, as well. So this all comes, so this is how like in practice it comes up and, you know, it seems to be a very a specific topic, but it can come up and it almost does come up uh, in every arbitration because you have to deal with the document production phase, of course. Am I am I correct in assuming this is a US style thing? It sounds very much like it. Invoking privilege? Yeah, and having the whole discussion as part of a US style document production. I'm just speaking now from from a like, national jurisdiction perspective that it's not really a big thing in national litigation, at least not in in Sweden and some other civil law countries that I know of. I would say it is more of a common law uh, conception or not, you know, it's more common in common law, more common in common law to have uh, the idea of privilege be so prevalent um, in the discussions of document production. Um, Because we have, you know, especially in the US, you have the rules of evidence that are so extensive. And even in Canada, you have, you know, the Evidence Act that has so many detailed rules on who can say what and how and which documents can be produced and and why they can't be. Um, so yeah, I would say in common law it is. But do, you guys don't have a set of evidentiary rules in Sweden. No, and I think it's similar in many other civil law jurisdictions as well, that it's, I mean, basically in court, everything to, to speak in a, in a to, to generalizing way can be admitted it's more a question of how much value the court attributes to it depending on what what type of evidence it is so there's there's nothing you know of the kind where you strike out things because it's not admittable or that kind of thing but of course there are exceptions and and some some types of privilege come in there as well in the professionally protected communication between doctors and patients and stuff like that but but generally no we don't have that tradition of what what can be admitted and what cannot it's more like everything is is submitted and then depending on the nature of the evidence it, it, it gets 
gets treated differently by the court. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of policies that have been, you know, the reasons why we have these rules of evidence related to privilege. And it all relates to, you know, attorney-client privilege, you want to make sure, or doctor-patient privilege, you want to make sure that they have, you know, the trust that these confidential communications will stay confidential regardless of whether there's a litigation or not. Um, You want to have state secrets or, you know, trade secrets just to make sure that you protect the business. Like, they all have the policy reasons behind it of why they have them. Um... So I think that's why they have become so sacred in the common law culture. Um, but in international arbitration, the tribunal has broad powers to determine the admissibility of evidence. So I would say it, it likens to the civil law jurisdiction where there isn't anything in the, you know, ex- express in the national arbitration laws or in the rules or well, most rules that have to do with privilege. Maybe that will mention privilege or the availability of the invocation of privilege but um, not necessarily the types of privilege and the scope of privilege um, per se. Right. But there is one major difference, and not to jump too far ahead into your structure here and screw Mm -hmm. everything up, but the domestic court always knows which law it is applying to questions of privilege. Exactly. Which which is not the case for arbitral tribunals. So the discretion is even bigger for tribunals because they can also decide which law should be applied to, to determine uh, questions of privilege, right? Absolutely. Or they can invent their own law. And by invent their own law, I mean apply international law because there is no international law on privilege. Um, but they can say that there's general conceptions under international law related to privilege, or they'll take kind of a general understanding of a certain privilege and apply that as well. So they kind of can do whatever they want. But you're right. Um, judges will have to work within the confines of the national law, um, whereas arbitrators kind of have full reign to um, do whatever they want. Um, so if you look at how what limits the arbitrator's discretion, you have the choice of law clause in the contract, um, and that's intended to potentially cover matters of privilege, but not necessarily because if you look at the intention of the parties in, in dedicating that choice of law um, to the contract, does that mean that documents that would be produced under a dispute relating to that contract would also... Um, avail parties to the privileges included in that choice of law? I don't think so. Um, And then what else could you look at? Um, The seat of the arbitration, and it's not likely to govern that as well, because then you're just looking for the procedural rules to say that privilege is procedure rather than substance. I don't know. So, I mean, there's there's these types of confines, but there isn't necessarily um, predetermined guidance for the arbitrators in, in establishing privilege. Um, So how, where do they look? Um, You can look at the model law. Article 19 of the model law provides that parties are free to agree on the procedures to be followed and absent an agreement between the parties, which is what we're facing now. The tribunal shall make decisions regarding the procedure and specifically has the power to determine the admissibility, relevance and materiality and weight of any evidence. Um, So you kind of have this general obligation if the parties have not agreed. The English Arbitration Act, for example, is substantially the same as the model law. Um, So under Section 34, it provides that it shall be for the tribunal to decide all procedural and evidentiary matters subject to the right of the parties to agree to any of those matters. Um, And then you can find other references to privilege in, um, in these types of laws, like the Hague Convention on the Taking of Evidence, Um, But then privilege comes up in rules, right? So this is just the national law to be applied depending on the choice of law of the, you know, of um, that the parties have 
designated or but they can also come up in the applicable rules that the parties have agreed to in their arbitration clause. So if we're talking about the admissibility of evidence under the ICSID arbitration rules, UNCTRAL rules or ICC arbitration rules, um, they really don't mention um, or they mention privilege, but they don't give you any guidance on what type of privilege or the scope of privilege. But if you look to, for example, the IBA rules and the taking of evidence, there, you still don't have much on privilege, but they do say that um, in Article 9, that questions of legal impediments or privilege, um, shall um, the tribunal can exclude certain types of evidence. So Article 9.3 specifies that the tribunal may, insofar as it is permitted by mandatory law, consider a range of factors in connection, in connection with a claim of privilege or other legal impediment. And this includes includes waiver of the privilege, such by consent, prior disclosure, affirmative use, etc. And uh, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's all. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was going to say that it seems to me that this is where we typically end up in the IBA rules, because most domestic laws and most arbitration rules basically say that uh, the parties can determine issues of, uh, of privilege, and if they don't, the tribunal can do whatever the tribunal wants. So naturally, we end up in a situation typically where the tribunal wants to seek guidance somewhere and then the IBA rules because they gave at least some indication as to what factors may be taken into account. That's where either the parties or the, or the tribunal guide the parties towards the IBA rules so that at least you have some sort of uh, common standard that is accepted. Right. You have a basis to, to proclaim that privilege can be used. Um, yeah, exactly. But then again, then we're left, and this is this reminds me very much of an interim measure analysis, right? You just kind of have the model law loose uh, test, and I think it's the same here. You have kind of a loose test to say, okay, certain documents can be prevented from disclosure due to elements of privilege, but we don't really know where to look. Um, yeah, right. That's that's a good uh, a good uh, comparison, I think, uh, and it's also similar to interim measures, a very good illustration of the wide discretion that tribunals sometimes have. And and let me add a layer to that, speaking as a former and future contributor of IA reporter as well, and a general student of awards. What you typically do in situations where you don't have a lot of guidance in the rules or the party agreement, especially in investment arbitration, is that you go to what other tribunals have done. But the problem with these types of questions is that they tend to pop up earlier in the dispute. So they are not in the award. Exactly. They might be in like procedural order number nine, where you're arguing over document production. So you won't see this in the end product as a user uh, or a reader or another tribunal. So you don't have a lot of access to well-reasoned decisions on privilege. So basically... Uh, the tribunal member's previous experience is the best guide if you want to look at any kind of precedent used in the widest possible way. Absolutely. And, you know, when they're look and it then it turns into like, what is the intention of the parties and what can they expect to have um, be invoked in an arbitration based off the applicable law that they've consented to and the applicable rules. Um, so the arbitrators really hopefully go to elements of fairness and equity between the parties when, when deciding what not to let in or what to let in. Um, so if, again, as you noted, Joel, I mean, we're really, the huge argument based off privilege is kind of the applicable law, the law to be applied. Um, so a claim of privilege can be based on the law of the forum, as we said, or the law of the domicile or residence of a certain party, 
or the law most closely connected with the communication or document, or perhaps international law or general pr principles of law, which is what I mentioned before. Um, and this will kind of depend depending on what the privilege is. Uh, so if you look to an attorney-client privilege, what do you think the obligations of an attorney are for attorney-client privilege? Well, would you look at to where the lawyer is domiciled? Would you look to where the, the discussions between the parties took place? Would you look to the where the where the client or where the party is domiciled where would you look um and kind of the happy medium of it all is this closest connection test um that has been kind of right. teased out um and so you have kind of what is the closest proximity to the event that you're trying to discuss and there's a test that requires the tribunal could that requires the tribunal to consider inter alia where the document was created the jurisdiction in which the lawyers were qualified, where the client was located, as I said. Um, and generally speaking of the jurisdiction in which the cl client lawyer relationship existed. So Joel, you would be kind of a ho whole mess of things if you were giving um, advice in Copenhagen, being a Swedish lawyer and your client was Canadian um, and you were giving your advice in London you know where where would we say the privilege was or where would we say the law should be applied to that type of communication is yeah that, that that's it's a good point the closest connection test is really originally developed for private international law conflicts of laws in in domestic court where it generally leads to a result because you don't have that many connecting factors whereas in the typical big international arbitration you have like nine different uh, connecting factor. So it's exactly. not that obvious, which is the closest uh, connected law. Right. And so what, what do you do as a tribunal there? And that's what I was getting back to at kind of looking to the intent of the parties and looking to the ability of the arbitral tribunal to use a more generally accepted rule of attorney-client privilege, maybe turning to general principles of law or international law to say, okay, well, this is how most jurisdictions look at attorney-client privilege, and therefore we're not even going to really get into a conflict of laws analysis or the nitty-gritty of the scope of the privilege or who is able to invoke the privilege, etc. Because, you know, Joel, I don't know if you have this concept, but if you have, for example, the marital or spousal privilege in the United States, which is actually two different privileges, uh, depending on who can invoke the privilege. So um, if the attorney, if you have like an attorney client privilege, is it the attorney that invokes the privilege or is it the client that invokes the privilege? Oh, right. Of course. Uh, think about that. So without even going into that, the tribunal can say, well, there's a generally accepted principle in international law that says that all communications between attorney client privilege are considered privileged and therefore cannot be disclosed then you don't even have to go into yeah, exactly. that. This is a good general tip, I think, as well, that the way most experienced arbitrators approach issues generally, yeah. there's no reason to go into a long analysis if you already know that in the end it's not going to matter. It's better to to see if there are any like common principles that you can use so you can avoid having the whole discussion and comparing different potentially applicable laws. Absolutely. I mean, the, and then the other way to look at it, if you don't go that general route, is to say, uh, a most favored nation, least favored nation analysis. So the most favored nation saying, okay, what is the most protected, uh, which is the jurisdiction with that provides the most protection or the most privilege um, as versus the least favored nation to say, okay, we'll take the one where it's the least. Um, the most favored nation kind of reflects the party's intent. 
um, to have more things privileged than not. Whereas in the least favored nation, you're kind of expecting more things to come out than you maybe one of the parties would have expected. But either way, one party is not getting what it intended. <laughs> um, and then, of course, what happens if you go on in the investment realm? Which Oh, yeah, good. I was going to ask that. Now your ears perked up, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and, you know, without going into because every every case will be different. And also, if you have, you know, a place that is just uh, arbitration that is jurisdictionless, we can say, um, depending on the seat, then you really don't have this type of view of what the conflict of law analysis should be or where should a, a tribunal should go. Um, and tribunals have taken different different approaches to this. Um, and, you know, we can just talk about permutations on when this has come up. So in Glamis Gold v. U.S., um, they talked about uh, privilege law in the United States, but they didn't know which state of the United States the privilege law should apply. Um, so they kind of took an overall consensus of the of the U.S. jurisdictions, kind of like the restatement, probably test of privilege, um, going to that more general approach that we just talked about. Mm, that's interesting. All the NAFTA cases, or rather many of the cases that discuss privilege, where you can read the tribunal's reasoning, they are NAFTA cases, and all the NAFTA states are federations. So you have another, <laughs> yeah. another twist to the problem, because then you have a state within the state that you also have to determine. Exactly. Um, and then attorney-client privilege came up in a couple NAFTA cases as well. Um, you have the Clayton and Bilkin v. Canada, Gaio v. Canada, and you also have um, Apotex v. U.S. Um, that kind of took it. I think Gaio v. Canada brought in a four-pronged criteria test, which is a, you know, a test that exists independently of their domestic law. Um, and that was basically that the document has to be drafted by a lawyer acting in his capacity as a lawyer, that the attorney-client relationship based on trust must exist between them, uh, and mm. that the document has to be elaborated for the purpose of obtaining or giving legal advice, and the lawyer and the client, when giving and obtaining the legal advice, must have acted with the expectation that it would have been kept confidential. And that directly mirrors, in essence, what it is in the U.S. So you kind of, oh yeah, um, you kind of see, even though this was Canada, you have um, kind of a similar rule in the U.S., which shows that there is some validity in taking a more general approach. Yeah, but the, to me, the most interesting thing with investment treaty arbitration where, where these issues come up is not really attorney-client privilege because it's similar in commercial and in treaty cases. Mm -hmm. It's rather the, the treaty-specific uh, um, characteristics, i.e. there's a state right. involved. Right. And so, so you have sort of a power asymmetry, which is something we talked about before in different contexts. So you, you, one party wants to have access to documentation that it claims is essential to its case. And the other party says, well, we're a state. This is obviously not something we can disclose. It might be a state secret. It might be confidential for other reasons. It's not just something we can we can give out. It might be politically sensitive. And, you know, it's talked about in the public interest privilege kind of way. Uh, right. Which, 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 uh, you know, it's at the very crux of, of many disputes, because if you don't get access to crucial documentation, you have no case. Absolutely. Um, and they, there are some cases that dealt with that, you know, state secret privilege that you're talking about. And the tribunals didn't really go into it, but just kind of kind of sidestepped the point in, in a couple of those cases. Um, an interesting case is the Bywater v. Tanzania case. Um mm -hmm where they, Tanzania sought to resist disclosure of cabinet advice to the president on the crown privilege and the public interest immunity under Tanzanian law. 
Um, and the tribunal rejected this argument kind of on something that we talked about in a previous episode, saying that national law does not apply in, in the ICSID regime, and therefore they can't rely on that privilege as it would undermine the rule that a state cannot reco- take seek recourse to its internal law as a means of avoiding its right. international responsibilities, which is quite an interesting uh, permutation of that problem. Yeah, it's it's sort of an analogy because it's not really a matter of, of the state's responsibility under international law, but it's still, uh, by extension, you they would be able to get out of it the next step of the analysis if they were able to change their own laws and say, no, we cannot disclose the information you're asking <laughs> <Exactly>. for. <laughs> exactly. Change the scope of the privilege, change the classification of the documents. I mean, there's so much that a state can do to yeah. make sure that it becomes privileged. Um, and then finally, an interesting, you know, side spinoff, you know, spinoff uh, series of this is um, how it comes in the context of third party funders. Oh, uh, your favorite. We've done my favorite investment arbitration. Now it's third party funding. <laughs> I'm getting that tattooed next to my uh, other tattoos that are <laughs> law related. Um, but this comes from our researcher, which we'll talk, which we'll give thanks to at the end of the episode. But um, Callum Agnew kind of brought up this um, third party funding issue in his research. Um, and it kind of discusses that there's a risk that documents relating to third party funding, whether that falls into this litigation privilege that can be maybe conceived in a general sense to include third party funding communication. So any you know discussions on the analysis of the contract or the views of the party um, as regards the you know the likelihood of them winning their case or anything that came up in the negotiations with the third party funder whether that can be um, disclosed in in arbitration or not so that was an interesting point from Callum yeah and the the next battleground in many ways it seems because the rules have not really developed for this no. Um, and there is a call for an international rule, just like there's a call for an international, you know, ethics rules, but um, none exists as of today. That's a happy note to end <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, I've had that and I've had this in a case and I, you know, you don't, the beauty of practicing is that you get issues that you haven't seen or even thought would be a problem before, but um, it was a whole round of submissions on privilege. Um, so that was quite interesting. Yeah, it's very practically relevant, I think. Absolutely. And it's if you kind of think about, you know, arbitration being a strategic battlefield, um, that is it's a, a real weapon if you can, you know, prevent disclosure of certain documents or um, of course, or try to, you know, extract documents from the other side. I think I'll add this to, to my list of potential uh, master thesis topics because I keep getting emails. So the list is almost empty. I have to start. <laughs> refreshing it with, with new good topics for thesis. A previous guest of ours, Patricia Shaughnessy, wrote her doctoral dissertation on privilege. Oh, that's right. I saw that in the library, actually, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's a, a good topic for this. Okay, so, but that was like 20 years ago. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's ripe for another monograph, at least. Absolutely. All right. Do you feel um, privileged by receiving my presentation? <laughs> Fun time over, like half an hour ago, we agreed. (laughs) All right, let's move on. We are here with Neil Scherzing, who is an independent arbitrator, but also is a member of the Arbitration Chambers. 
Um, thank you for coming on the podcast and spending some time with us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Is there a reason why you've focused on post MA? I used to when I I'm from a I'm from an age where you at least in my original jurisdiction Denmark you could do both contentious and non-contentious work and mm-hmm. I actually did both. I, I used to do a lot of corporate and tax tax work. I taught tax law at the university as well and and that led me to be involved in a lot of transactional work. So I did a lot of M&A work and shareholder shareholders agreements and so on in as in my non-contentious capacity while also at the same time uh, arguing a lot of, of, of disputes related to transactions uh, in my in my contentious capacity. It probably makes you a better contentious lawyer when you have done the non-contentious work. I think it actually works both ways. I think you are actually a you can become a better contentious lawyer by doing non-contentious work and you can also be a a better a better non-contentious lawyer right. by doing contentious work. Right. That's true. And we can already jump into a question that I had because we do get a lot of questions down um, in we're on the sixth floor in our arbitration practice down up from the 10th floor saying, "Hey, can you look at this contract, this M&A agreement that we're about to sign? Uh, wh- how, what do you think and besides the formalities of it, okay, well, you need to add a seat to arbitration and stuff like that. What would you say, maybe, you know, in your work as a transaction lawyer, what, what do you think are some of the things to note or some things to flag or things to think about when you're reviewing um, an, arbitra- an arbitration clause in an MA? I think what, what most people involved in, <clears throat> in, in, in transactional work today um, is noting. Uh, is there is often a dual dispute resolution clause in an M&A contract. There is one dispute resolution clause, typically an expert, financial or accounting expert, dealing with uh, accounting or calculation issues. And then there is the general arbitration clause. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And being very clear about the demarcation lines, about what is the competence of the, the accounting expert, and what is the competence of the uh, jurisdiction uh, uh, of the of the general arbitration tribunal, uh, arbitral tribunal? What do, that that is of, of, of that's very important. Interesting, yeah. but that's not the focus of what you're researching and writing about now. It's it's part of it's it's part of it now, but it's 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 more the the the, the book on earnout uh, is substantive principles, but of mm. course they. It's it's a very uh, disputes prone uh, part of 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 M and A, of an M and A agreement and and such. It's uh, the 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 case law. I mean, it's based basically on case law. Uh, so it's, it's of course it's it's uh, disputes related. Right. So how is this book that you're writing now? How is it structured? How what are what are kind of the topics that you're looking into? Which one? I'm, I'm writing to the 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 post M and A. Okay. Um, well, that that deals with um, with basically everything. I, I'm trying to take a, what I would call a sequential approach. First, I, I deal with um, uh, the formation of of an M and A agreement. Um, when is there an agreement? Term sheets, uh, letters of intent. Uh, memorandums of, of different kinds and when can a party withdraw from an agreement based on what's called a material adverse change or material adverse mm. effect based on maybe on competition law issues and so on um, 
and also anti-reliance clauses uh, I will cover in, 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 that, in that respect. And then this, the second part then deals with, uh, with the purchase price issues. Uh, there are, is it a fixed uh, purchase price uh, contract, also known as a locked box contract? Right, I read or, about that. <laughs> or is it a closing account where you have an adjustment at closing from a a, in, in a previous estimate of, of certain accounts. Um, that, that, and then uh, there is also, again coming back to earnouts, that's a the post-closing adjustment of the purchase price contingent of the performance of the target of the transaction. How common is that? That is, um, there was some, um, some recent statistic uh, from, the, uh, from the US, I think it was around 28%. Of, of M&A deals involve uh, uh, an earnout provision, and it's it's used to to bridge typically to bridge a gap in the perceived value of the target. Right. Uh, and and uh, it's it's supposed to uh, to uh, be a win-win in the sense that uh, if if the target performs, then the seller gets paid more, and if the target does not perform, then the buyer is 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 protected against having overpaid. Uh, at closing, is there are they actual figure targets that they're supposed to meet in order to have an earnout? You can have both uh, a financial performance metric based on either revenue or uh, net income or EBITDA or EBITDA or, mm-hmm. or, or profits, and you can also have non-financial uh, benchmarks, and that's very common, not least in the in the life science sector where you have uh-huh. regulatory approval. As, as a condition for 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 success, so if a, a, an approval is granted, then you get paid, or otherwise you don't. That seems the most dispute prone, right? I think they're both um, really. They are. They <laughs> both. They both are. I mean, there are surprisingly a st- amount of, of disputes relating to um, to uh, differences in in accounting principles when is revenue to be recognized, and so on and so forth. Is there any kind of management related? post-closing disputes. I don't know if that would be related to earnout or that would be something completely different. No, no, like- uh, that's, uh, that's another uh, uh, often disputed area where the, the seller, having relinquished co- uh, control of the, of the target company at closing, mm-hmm. and afterwards the target does not meet uh, the, uh, the benchmarks, and then the, 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 the seller complains that it's due to bad management or even f- f- almost fraudulent behavior or bad faith behavior on the part of the buyer right. in order to to uh, deny the seller the benefits or the fruits of the bargain that they made with the with the buyer so that's uh, that's another very often contested uh, contested area i would say there are there are two main main issues one is what i call a category one or not dispute that is did the target achieve the benchmarks and uh, agreed upon and then that will deal with uh, accounting principles and revenue recognitions and so on and that's one then the other one is the category two is why did the target not meet the 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 benchmarks that's almost kind of counterfactual in the sense that you will then have to 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 look at the performance and the reasons for the the lackluster performance of the the target post-closing and whether that is something that amounts to a breach of contract on the part of the buyer do you usually, this seems like a very, these disputes seem to be uh, extremely expert heavy, or, do you, or is it a lot of internal accounting 
professionals that are serving as witnesses, or how do you present the case? Um, it is it is experts heavy, and, and this is why <clears throat> um, uh, I think is one of the reasons why arbitration is the preferred method of dispute resolution in the sense that I think most commercial parties will think that 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 the ordinary courts are, are rather ill-equipped. Mm-hmm. With some notable exceptions, such as the Court of Chancery in Delaware, but but the courts in general are rather ill-equipped to deal with these matters. And if uh, electing or opting for arbitration, you will you will have the chance of, of having people with with substantial hands-on experience and understanding of, of the lingo right. uh, of the contracts and also understanding valuation, the different methodologies applied in valuation. You will often see the target being valued at the same point in time very differently by different experts based on a, a difference in methodology and you need then for a tribunal to be composed of arbitrators who can actually make a, a, an educated choice between the methodologies and see which one is the most appropriate either according to the contract or if the contract is appropriate right. considering all, all the other facts of the case. And then in building the team, because very, very rarely does a team of, you know, arbitration practitioners composed of anybody other than someone who is an arbitration practitioner. What I mean is that no one from the environment part of your firm is coming down on your environment arbitration. It just sticks to the their arbitration lawyers. But there must be on these types of cases, people from the M&A groups coming in and not, not only counseling the arbitration lawyers on what to look for, but actually advocating at any point? You, you often see um, I, people from the, from the the transactional department and the disputes department working together in these cases. Yeah. Uh, you, you have and, to, right? Yeah, and arguing the cases together, uh, maybe arguing different points and so on. So no, there is a, there's a lot of, of interplay between those two uh, practice groups in, in these kind of disputes. And when you talk about lingo, yeah. people knowing the lingo, yeah. are there certain institutions that are kind of the forefront of, okay, well, I have an M&A dispute, we should, even though they're usually an arbitration clause, so you don't really have a choice, but building it into the arbitration clause, for example. I would say that all the major arbitration uh, institutes, they, they are well equipped. They can they're well equipped to handle these types of disputes, and they have a good pool of arbitrators to, to select from, from various jurisdictions. Yeah. Do you, are you noticing a trend in people specializing in M&A arbitration um, as you would in an investment treaty arbitration specialist? There are some, but, but fewer that, that specialize entirely in M&A arbitrations. But, but it, it is a, it's a, you know, M&A arbitrations, shareholder disputes and JV disputes, these kind of commercial chancery disputes, I think it, it's, a, it's a sensible specialization uh, for, for, uh, for people to make. Yeah. Are, do you have you done any shareholder disputes? I've done many. Yeah. What I, I feel like it's not. I wouldn't call it a trend, but I feel like a lot of because usually it's company versus company, or and now shareholders are becoming a little bit more sophisticated and they're bringing their own disputes. Uh, do you see? Are there any legal issues that you've run into as far as multiple shareholders trying to join in on a dispute or shareholder one shareholder a has brought a dispute and it's reached an award and now shareholder b wants to bring a dispute and there's rest judicata issues i don't know if you any interesting legal i haven't, I haven't problem. encountered the, these exact no. problems no what about the recovery of 
damages for shareholders? Is there any? Well, you know, it's a very interesting topic. To what extent uh, are shareholder disputes arbitrable? And, and, yeah. the, and the answer to that question differs from jurisdiction uh, between jurisdictions. So, but uh, but it, but it is it's a, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Because it, I mean, it's come up most a lot in um, investment arbitration because um, you have these companies that have brought these disputes, and then you have shareholders that want to bring them subsequently. Yeah, and also the recovery is is limited based off what they can recover, depending on how you qualify as an investor under the treaty. Yeah, there is uh, there is the uh, as I recall, there was a case between uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, and they were the two the same set of facts were decided very differently mm-hmm. yeah exactly decided very differently a bit in the case between uh, yeah, in two cases yeah exactly so anything in any anything thing surprised you in your preparation of this book um, any new ground you've broken or any controversial positions that had to be there are there are controversial decisions, not least concerning the demarcation lines between what an, what can an expert decide? Is he only a, uh, an expert determining, for example, a a, um, a working capital uh, at closing? Can he only do what is what is sometimes a bit derogatory known as as bean counting, or can he also apply or decide on what accounting principles should be applied? And has uh, whether um, uh, the the seller uh, at closing had applied the, the, the correct accounting principles and so on and so forth. Now that is, that is, there are some very very interesting uh, cases that I'm, I'm dealing with in, in that regard. And otherwise, I would say the book on earnouts will give should give food for thought for for, for people drafting the contracts because the, the sheer myriad of and plethora of, of disputes arising out of these of, of these, in in theory, very valuable tools and very uh, good tools to employ in a, in, a, in a contract is 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 quite striking. Absolutely. Did you had did you start as a transaction lawyer? Or you started as a disputes lawyer. I started at both when I was very young, and then I I think I I did as I recall it. I, I did I did you know about fifty fifty mm. for many years, and then I did more non-contentious work and then I, I started doing more contentious work again and then I, at some point in time I decided I wanted to focus my my practice on, on contentious work. When you were working as a transactional lawyer, you know, drafting contracts is always a daunting task unless you use a model and just ref- refurbish it. But um, do you have any tips for people drafting M&A agreements um, from your experience? Yeah, I can offer some, some, some rather general comments. Um, Based on not only my experience as a as a non-contentious drafter of, of contracts, but but not least in my capacity as a as a post M A disputes arbitrator, looking <laughs> at at the work in, in hindsight uh, with the benefit of hindsight, um, I would say first of all, since since M A contracts are normally very elaborate documents, um, and drawing on this the Anglo-American drafting style. A draftsman, a draftsperson should consider or assume that tribunals may generally be cautious to imply terms into the contract based on the notion that if the parties are uh, professional and they are advised by professionals, uh, skilled professionals, if they 
want to regulate a particular issue or want to regulate a particular issue in this particular way, they could and probably would have included it in the contract. It's a very common law. It's a very common law. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree. And but but it's, I think you, you see that in in a lot of these cases where a disgruntled party say rely on the on the implied good faith and, and right. fair dealings principles uh, and so on. They rarely succeed in these. They rarely succeed in these cases. And the second second one is you should. Uh, you should be um, you should consider the applicable law and 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 be beware of rely beware and re- relying on the on the general legal principles in the law governing in the contract. Um, I can give in as, as an example of yeah. a boilerplate provision. They often put in there just at the end, and, and it's from the last template you put in the boilerplate provision in in the, in the next contract. And, and there is a, what's called an integration clause or a merger clause, which says that this is the, the contract is the whole agreement between the parties. Right. And in, in a common law setting, uh, there is the parole evidence rule, meaning that if the contractual provision is unambiguous, then you cannot rely on, you cannot, and, and extri- extri- extrinsic evidence, sorry, and you cannot even admit that. Right. Whereas that, that that's not the case in the civil most civil law, if not all civil law uh, settings, that you can rely on it, but but of course, the the value will be for the the court or the tribunal to to, to decide, and if you then have an integration clause in a common law setting, that will bolster or further um, put emphasis on the fact that the parties themselves want the contract. To be a, a, a standalone document right. and and not include uh, any extrinsic extrinsic evidence, but but if you are in a civil law jurisdiction, um, with the civil law uh, governing the contract, what is the meaning of the integration clause? Is that to make sure you, you cannot admit such documents, uh, or is it is uh, a pre-contractual negotiations memorandums and so on, mm-hmm. or is it just that? The tribunal should attach less weight to them, or no weight, or what? What is the meaning? I mean, if you want a provision to have a specific meaning, state that in the contract. Uh, and then a, a, a regularly um, occurring problem is is a, a disputes relating to hierarchy of documents. If you have, for instance, a valuation dispute. And you have a valuation clause saying that you need to apply what's called GAP or generally accepted accounting principles mm-hmm. as consistently applied by the target. What happens if you realize that it is debatable and contestable if GAP was at all applied? Uh, oh yeah. If there is a then a hierarchy. Do you choose GAP or do you use consistency? Mm. That is a very very common. Uh, issue in contention in even between highly sophisticated parties and so if it's a good idea to establish a clear hierarchy if there is a conflict between documents wow and then and then the last thing i would say is especially these dual dispute resolution mechanism be very very clear who is who is uh, who is to decide uh, what kind of disputes there was a, a recent decision from the supreme court of delaware where uh, the, the closing accounts discrepancy between the parties was $2 billion. And one party said, this is for the accounting 
the accountant, the independent expert to decide, and the other said, no, 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 this is for the for the court to decide. Right. Uh, and there are there actually there are conflicting decisions from from various jurisdictions. In this particular case, the Supreme Court held that this is this is not a, a post closing or a closing account dispute. It's actually a, a, a question of representations and warranties concerning the application of GAAP. Uh, so it was for the the courts to decide. Ah. But that was a Supreme Court of Delaware overturning the Chancery, Court of Chancery in Delaware. So, what is what, I have the Court of Chancery is just for, uh, like uh, company disputes, M and A disputes. It's it's the uh, it's the leading business litigation forum, in my opinion, in the world. Right. Because uh, so many companies are incorporated there. Yeah, and, and they have uh, they have chancellors very well. It's very, very seasoned chancellors and vice chancellors deciding the disputes. They're not jury trials. They're decided right. by, by very competent uh, judges. What about? I mean, you talked about breaches of warranties and representations. Yeah. Are there any things when you're drafting these representations and warranties? Are they pretty standard between an M and A? They are very often very standard, mm. but, but you need really need to to pay attention to which ones are really pertinent in this particular setting. I mean, that is probably tried to say, but it's, it's, a, it's a lesson often taught, but, but, uh, but uh, still frequently you see that, that the parties did not devote sufficient time to, to really consider what, what representations and warranties are really needed and which ones right. should be focused on, and also the, the kind of the bespoke wording of, of these, uh, of these uh, representations and warranties. And what going to earnouts? Is there any is there any specific type? Is it usually also generic language or type? You kind of just plug in. Okay, we want this type of earnout or this type of earnout. Or do they really tailor and customize it too? Oh, they're very often customized, and they're very often customized. And and uh, an issue often in contention is is the one that we we dealt with before. What requirements post closing? Uh, um, do you have in place for for the buyer if the buyer takes over uh, at at closing and does not uh, the management of the seller does not are not retained right. during the earnout period? What what requirements are, are what uh, either you know in the prescriptive language or or, or, or otherwise should should uh, be adhered to by 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 the buyer? Do you they need to be very precise in that. Is there, what about, I mean, you say that a, an arbitrator would be unwilling to imply a term or maybe even, if you would agree, rewrite a term. Mm -hmm. uh, would, what if you have an earnout clause that is particularly aggressive against a buyer, for example, targets that could never be reached or um, very strict you know, mandates that they were bound to fail? Would, would that be um, something that an arbitrator would say, okay, well, that's kind of an unconscionable term, so I would kind of say they did their best and it's good enough, would that ever happen or am I? Again, I mean, if you're dealing with, with sophisticated parties advised by sophisticated counsel, I think most, stick to the word. most arbitrators would, would f find themselves bound to, to stick to the agreement that the parties have, have, have elected to, to agree to. Yeah, it's, I, f I feel like this topic is, maybe this is why you're writing the, the first treatise. I um, think it is. Yeah. I haven't been able to find anything it's I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more written about it. I think it's because that I think that the reason is that that it's uh, people consider it kind of jurisdiction sensitive. Uh, I see. Um, 
and it's hard to find it's also hard to to find i would say the necessary body of case law to to make a, a, a comprehensive and cohesive treatise and i right. i do think i i managed to do it but the time will show <laughs> so is it more of like a comparative or you're just kind of saying the general principles you know as i as i as i said before if if you um, I think it's it's uncontroversial to say that in this day and age, the the language applied across the globe in in any kind of substantial, uh, in most at least most substantial M and A transactions, they are virtually the same. It's mm. the same legal principles. Uh, most of them arising out of coming from from the U.S. and coming from the common law common law world um, that are used even in a civil law context. And and I think that you, of course, there will not be stare decisis if if uh, if uh, an arbitral tribunal sitting uh, in in country A uh, dealing with a, a contract governed by this that that country looking to country B for right. for in, inspiration, um, and if you, I mean, I can give a, a very mundane, not maybe not mundane, but I can give as an example, uh, the the English courts they have they've relied on. And referred to the the Court of Chancery in Delaware for the interpretation of an a material adverse change clause. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, so. So, I think I think we can hope at achieving jurisprudence constante uh, concerning some of the the, the more the, the pertinent and most frequently used terms. Contractual terms in in MA contracts, which would be great for arbitration because that's you strive for that jurisprudence yeah. and so on. Yeah. But thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Classic happy fun time topic. How do we address each other and colleagues in international arbitration? I think this is a good topic since we have both been bothered by this and thought about it. So presumably other people have as well. But bottom line, before we confuse everything considerably, you address people the way they want to be addressed. That way you never breach protocol. The problem, of course, is that you don't know typically how people prefer to be addressed. You, you can't always Google uh, or have access to previous correspondence or other sources where it's clear the way you're supposed to address person X. So you have to, to make a decision based off of very limited information. Right. And this, we, there are, of course, different kinds of titles. And as always, I approach this from an academic perspective and I, assuming you have other <laughs> angles to look at this uh, because it, it's a big thing in, in academia, of course, but since many people in arbitration also try to benefit off of their academic titles or backgrounds in order to get appointments or, or clients or whatever, it, it sort of uh, transfers into the arbitration world as well. So I try to look up uh, academic titles because I, I had the sense that I was supposed to be the authority on this. Uh, since I'm in, in the academic world pursuing an academic title and I have no idea really what works So there's a Wikipedia page for this, which is like 9,000 pages long Basically just listing the principles for academic titles in every country in the oh. world Thereby I think just adding further to the confusion. It's very helpful if you want to know how to address an arbitrator who's a lecturer in Croatia or something, but 
uh, much too comprehensive, I think, for our purposes, which should be to shed some, some general light. We will now read 9,000 pages of Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, confusing. But the problem stems from the fact that many famous arbitrators uh, and not-so-famous arbitrators as well uh, are full-time practitioners, uh, but when you see their names on awards or conference programs, they have the title of professors, for example. Right. So Emmanuel Gaillard, Gabriel Kaufmann-Kohler, Jan Paulson, these are all uh, full-time practicing lawyers with big law firms, but they are addressed as Professor Gaillard, Professor Kaufmann-Kohler. Now, these people are professors uh, as well, although presumably not full-time, because that would be complicated if you're a professor and a full-time busy counsel and a full-time busy arbitrator, you have three full-time gigs. These are superstars, so maybe they're able to, to swing it, and I don't know about these particular individuals and their employment deals with their universities. But I think many others are obviously uh, not full-time professors. And then the question becomes, of course, where do you draw the line? When are you a professor or even more complicated, when are you a doctor? Yeah, I mean, I teach a couple of times at Stockholm University and Uppsala University. Do I get called a professor? Well, I think sometimes I get the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, because uh, students in the U.S., uh, generically, just in, in college or whatever, outside of our world of arbitration, you address the person who is teaching at the university as professor. Right. It's not a it's not a formal title that you need to have something for. But then again, do you remember Mark Cantor uh, from ICA, mm -hmm. the way he made a point out of emphasizing that he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown, right? And thus did not want to be addressed as professor out of respect, uh, it seemed, for the full time faculty. That's how I would draw the line: full time and and part time. Yeah, yeah, that's good, uh, I think. But it's also then, we're back to the question of what's a full-time. <laughs> <laughs> leave it to lawyers to overcome. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it matters because it's a commodity, of course. And I always think about this because, especially in investment treaty arbitration, where you uh, undoubtedly have a lot of full-time professors who moonlight on the side as arbitrators, you see just the first thing you see when you read an award is on the title page. You see the names and titles of the arbitrators. So you're forced to reflect upon upon their titles and it's typically that at least one of them is professor uh, or or doctor or doctor professor or professor doctor or you know i that's my first question to you which why do we need both of those i i'm probably wrong about this but i have a theory so uh, and it hasn't stopped me before that i don't know what i'm talking about i think <laughs> I, I think the prof I think the professor doctor is a response to what I just said about uh, the fact that the title professor is being thrown around. So, um, so you can be a professor in some jurisdictions in some cultures, basically if you're teaching. So if you're just an esteemed lawyer, not saying that that's uh, uh, anything bad or uh, uh, you know not not qualified, but if you're just at teaching every now and then that makes you a professor and I some see. people then call themselves professor but if you're a professor doctor and this i am assuming i know specifically of a few german people who will probably tell us we're wrong about this because it's, it's in germany usually that you see it a professor doctor is somebody who is a professor because they have an academic career they have a doctoral uh, degree and they've gone through the, all the hoops of yeah. becoming a full-time you know professor the equivalent of tenure in the u.s system 
So that's a way to distinguish the the real professors from the other professors, I think. That's my impression, at least, and they, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., doctor is kind of like it. I mean, that's the that's the last one you need to get. So if you're a doctor, that kind of trumps all of your other titles, and then you become, you know, doctor... Mike Leininger was the name of my principal at my at my high school. So he was he was a doctor, even though he was a professor. It was everyone just called him doctor, um, because there was no need to call you professor because doctor was so much more important or so much more established. Because just as you say, anyone can be a professor, but you actually got your doctor doctoral, you know, title. So you that should be the one you use. Yeah, that's interesting because I think in many other places it's the other way around that it's the professor's title that's sacred. Right. Anyone can get a doctorate, but in order to be able to call yourself professor, you have to do another two decades of serious research after your doctorate. Ah. So, so that might be some of the explanation behind this confusion. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but and it's also, I don't know, we have the the thing with real doctors as well, meaning medical doctors, who I think are a bit upset when people who did three years <laughs> of like public international law call themselves mm. doctors. It's not something you. You don't rush to people's assistance at an airplane where there's a medical emergency. <laughs> oh, Joel, that's so funny. <laughs> Is there a doctor in the room? Yes. Okay, yeah. what's the problem? Well, yeah, exactly. under international who, who, law... Who expropriated what? <laughs> so the privilege on this plane is... Um... <laughs> So, so that's why I, I won't be throwing my that's doctorate so around, funny. assuming I, I will get it. Because I think in the general population, it's just stupid to, to claim that you're a doctor. But it's different, of course, in arbitration when you're in a specific context where it might matter at least somewhat. And that, that's another thing. I don't know which country is the most obnoxious with this. It, it seems it's Germany, maybe some countries in Africa as well. I get the impression that people really, even in emails and everything, you want to be using your title if you have one whereas in others it doesn't really matter yeah even i mean even at the end of your name they'll you know definitely in germany they write llm or even on their business cards i mean that's a whole nother thing like what do you what do you sign your name with what do you get called but what do you put on your business card um i took off esquire on my business cards where i have worked so hard to be called an esquire and then i realized that outside (laughs) of the u.s you just sound like a, a downton abbey failure and so i yeah, you know, have now taken that off so you know there's a how much do you put on and how much does it really matter definitely depends on where you come from yeah i can only agree i have some other sub issues on this as well uh, but we also have other titles to to talk about and w- one of them while we're at it this is sort of a sidebar but this is a moot court classic how do we address arbitrators good one yeah i was thinking about this I was penalized during one of my moot courts for calling someone president. Um, So we, I have now developed the habit of calling them chairperson or chairman or chairwoman. Um, And then for some reason, the French has dominated, right? So you say like Madame or Monsieur. um, What? When you're writing emails, at least. Really? Yeah. Dear Madam Arbitrator. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true, actually. Now, come to think of or it. Or Madam Chair, you would say. Yeah, but you wouldn't say Monsieur Arbitrator. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Monsieur. But why? Yeah, why is that? Yeah, I know why. And that's another thing we have to address. And that's because it's strange. And you don't know whether or not to call the female arbitrator Miss Arbitrator or Mrs. Arbitrator. Because the English language. Here's my problem with the English language. Mrs. is obviously outdated and silly. The yeah. whole idea being that a woman derives her name from her husband. 
And by that logic, since I have my wife's last name, that would make me Mrs. Kulboy. And it just, it, it doesn't work in 21st century to, to keep no. using Mrs. But at the same time, Miss sounds like something you use condescendingly to your secretary in the 1960s. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't really work. Neither works for me. And, and I don't think for most other people, you can't say Miss Arbitrator or Mrs. Arbitrator. No, no. So, no. so that, that may be Madam Arbitrator is a good compromise because it, it gives some dignity to the title. But that's a general problem uh, when you're writing in a formal capacity to female uh, colleagues or associates or opponents or arbitrators. What do you do as a native English speaker? What is the default? If you don't know, because it's still, I can criticize this as much as I want, but still we have rules for how to address people and they say miss or missus in a formal setting for a woman in the English language. Which one do you go with if you're not sure whether or not she's married? And it's crazy I have to ask this question, but it, it is what it is. Well, if it's right. So, oh, good one. Um, I think I would default to the first name, actually. <laughs> um, oh, that oh, so many layers to this. It's like an onion of, of happy fun time. Yeah. More and more questions keep. No, keep but popping it's up. true uh, because you don't know. I mean, I would never call. It's because it's, it's just exactly what you said, like calling someone miss right now in the 2018 we're a modern you know country you know modern world and everything like that that everyone's using miss now regardless of what your you know whether your your status is um but it's still for some people is considered condescending that it's you know miss not right there yet smith you know it's like you're not quite married yet yeah exactly you wouldn't call gabrielle kaufman kohler miss kaufman kohler no. like she's 19 years old I would feel more comfortable calling her Gabrielle if I would ever have the ability to call her anything. <laughs> okay, but because that's a good thing. Maybe you are uh, uh, a strange animal here because Maybe. of your Californian background. Because I've been, I've been thinking about this as well. At what point do you enter first name basis territory? Mm. Because, of course, in, like, say that you've done an arbitration together, which you have uh, many times for like three years, and you've met at one hearing, and you were writing the 90-second email to that person. Right. Do you maintain formal full title? Dear Mr. X. Or at what point do you start using the first name? It depends. Right. It depends on where it would come. So if you're exchanging emails with opposing counsel that is CC'd to the tribunal, then you're definitely not going to be like, hey, Joel, nice to see you. But if I'm writing to you about like, hey, let's set up a call to discuss, you know, the agenda for the procedural telephone conference, then I might slip back into the informality because the audience is just to that person. Um, oh, so you mean that within the same relationship, the same you relationship. switch back and forth depending on the context? Yes, because you know what it also does? It also like establishes a tone of um, comfort and uh, collegiality, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're like, you know, we're about but that's good. to... I, I'm happy I catch you now in my cross-examine way <laughs> that I didn't really intend because uh -oh. that sort of undermines what you just said <gasps> because if it's a woman, you always use the first name then. Yes. But even if so, it's a man, I don't think that changes based off gender. I just think that with a, with a female, it is more sensitive. So it's easier for to default. Yeah, but if it's if it's there, if there's a distinction contextually between formal and informal communication, yes. you will still you would still use the woman's first name even in a formal communication. That's what I'm asking. Uh, I see. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes me I don't know. I don't know where I, I'm not criticizing because I have 
I it's it's hard to draw like a, a hard line because you don't know the situation or you don't know how clear the title is of the person on the other side. If you have a doc, a, you know, a female doctor on the other side, then it's so much it's so easy. You just call them doctor and it's fine. Or um, if you actually know that the person is married and you have seen in previous correspondence that they go by Mrs. or whatever, um, then it's not a, or like conferences that they spoke at. I mean, you really I, I've done this many times. What if you don't even know the gender of the person you're writing to? Um, which I've done before. You have to like do research and you find conference panels that they've spoken on and then you find the designation given to them on that panel so you know that's what they want because they've been asked what title to put on on the promotional material. So, I mean, you really have to like go into it. And if you're, if all I'm saying is that it's better to say the first name than to make a mistake. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. It just frustrates me that there's no single quick fix solution in the English language uh, on how to approach women professional address women right? <laughs> we should have an international title but we should have that once you enter the world of international arbitration you light a candle and you get a title which would be uh gender neutral chancellor <laughs> yeah that brings me to another thing that our, our uh, researcher did, uh, brought up did you see this did you look it up Yes, I did. Caleb sent us this uh, thing from from Herod's, which is unfortunately gone now. But for a while, when you went through the Herod's the uh, store in in London, their web page uh, to contact them, they had a contact form. You had to fill in your details when you were sending them questions. And uh, as is frequently the case in that type of scenario, you have to if, click in your title, and there's a drop down menu, which is typically Mr. Miss Mrs. Doctor, maybe. Uh, and some other uh, thing to choose from. You still with me? Yeah. Oh, good. I was afraid I lost Wi-Fi. <laughs> uh, but in this case, in the Herod's case, it's like a bunch of titles, which says a lot about what Herod's think about themselves. We have um, Sir, of course, because it's London. Madame, Mademoiselle, Major, Monsieur, Prince, <laughs> Princess. That that was for me, actually. Oh, not oh, the yeah. Princess, Prince, Prince. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Earl Wing Commander, which is a very good title to have. Yes. Her Royal Highness has an option of her own <laughs> to use. And it goes on and on. Lord. Oh, Lord would be good, but it's probably already protected by rules. You Joel, just... I've just thought, I thought of another wrinkle in this to make this even more confusing. What if, I mean, this is 2018 and we're all, you know, assessing our genders and maybe in a non-binary sense oh yeah 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 what uh, if i declare during arbitration i'm non-binary and they have to call me they yeah oh uh, <laughs> what's the title for a non-binary person arbitrator <laughs> or, or <laughs> counsel i mean this is a good illustration of the fact that arbitration is a, a bit behind because that would be you know that's just a meltdown i can't even imagine the train like that would be it's like a junior lawyer on a big arbitration declared that in, in the hearing or something oh my god yeah yeah um, that's not going to happen sorry to take it away from uh, the the herod's issue but i was just thinking because there were so many titles that that one's not even covered but yeah. I, if you think yeah, about I think, it, even... I think Harrods is at the other end of the spectrum here when it comes to. <laughs> it's very binary, in Harrods. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking about if you're having an investment case and maybe you have someone from the government on the other side, there's so many titles um, for those government employees or the status of what they are in the government. Do you really use those, though? Don't I... you just say Mr. or Miss slash Mrs.? 
Unless, what if it's rude? What if it's, you know, a prince or a high-ranking official that is Dude. now testifying in this case? Yeah, you don't know that, really. You would say, your highness, thank you for coming to this cross-examination. We need a rule book for this, because the, the, the options are just infinite, uh, and it's uh, complicated in, <laughs> in so many different ways. But for everyone out there, if you want to address Joel, you can address him as Mrs. Coolbody. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm fine with that. We have to. We have to. Somebody has to step up for for the non-binary pronouns and and arbitration. Well, on that note, uh, Joel, I think we can wrap up this episode. But first, I mean, I will thank him personally since he helped in the research for um, the privilege segment. Um, Caleb Agnew, which is one of the first of our three legal researchers that we've hired um, to help us on this podcast, he is. Canada based, but uh, a UK frequenter. Um, he has helped us in this first episode and will be helping us for the four episodes that follow. And then, Joel, do you want to say how it's going to continue? Yeah, I don't really recall which exact order. I think uh, the second one is Risha Brahija, who will step in for the second part of the season. And for the final part of the season, season it's Dmitry Mednikov. And I think we'll present them as as they enter the arbitration station exactly. team for real and start working with us. But we were very happy since we got so many applications that were very, very good. We figured we will hire three people rather than one and split it up, which seemed to work well for them Absolutely. as well, because they are obviously busy, ambitious young professionals. So it was probably just as well that they could spread it out a little bit. Thanks also to Johan Kunster, who's still very much on our team uh, while uh, juggling another career on the side and thanks to IA reporter uh, who helps us with with the finances for the season three follow us on twitter at the arb station write to us at the arbitration station at gmail.com fund us at indiegogo.com and register for the ical conference at ical.aa.org <laughs> okay jet lag brian kodic out signing off